All right, so we're diving into the last week of our Bloodline series. We've been talking about the ancestry of Jesus and this narrative of people that we see throughout the Old Testament that lead up to uh, the, the culmination of humanity in the, the birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're leading up to him because we get to see throughout the Old Testament these glimpses and these snippets of, of God, of God not abandoning humanity. So the story we're going to read today uh, takes place 800 years after the story of Abraham. So two weeks ago, I taught on Abraham being the, the, the quote-unquote patriarch uh, of, of Israel, of this bloodline that was going to lead to Jesus. So 800 years later, we have David who enters the picture, who I'm not sure if this is accurate, but I read the story this week. It's long. In fact, I think it might be the longest biography of any person in the Old Testament. I don't know if that's true. It just felt like it. Uh, it's, a, it's a really long story about David, and it's in multiple different parts of the Bible. So David comes along 800 years after Abraham, and then 1,000 years after David, Jesus Christ is born. So that's where we're at in history. And the Old Testament, if you haven't read it, or if you haven't read it in a while, because I was reminded of it this week as I read a large chunk of it, it is an absolute roller coaster ride of emotion. It is filled with um, a few bright spots that are really inspiring. You get glimpses of like, ooh, that's God, or ooh, that's Jesus. Uh, followed by these horribly tragic occurrences and stories of people just plummeting into the abyss. And it just, it's a roller coaster ride, and it's emotional to read it. It's dark, and it's a, it's a broken, uh, lots of brokenness that we see throughout the Old Testament. But we, one thing we continually see is God pursuing the heart's of humanity. So we pick up the story in the midst of this technological revolution. All right, uh, they've gone from bronze to iron. This is a big deal, apparently, in Near Eastern culture. Uh, the Philistines pretty much have a monopoly on the iron. So they are making, they have the best weapons, they have the best agriculture, they are at the, the peak of, of civilization. So to take that a couple, uh, maybe a couple thousand, a few thousand years later, similar. Um, advancement that we have in America is incredible Wi-Fi. Because I was in Europe a few months ago, and I was in Europe last year. Their Wi-Fi has nothing on our Wi-Fi. All right? It's just, I don't know what it is, but we have cornered the market on fast internet. And that's why Americans are so impatient when they travel, because no one has great Wi-Fi like we do. So um, the Philistines had iron. We have incredibly fast internet. I mean, we ha I mean, Al Gore, an American, invented the internet, so we should have the fastest internet. So um, here's what happens, all right? The Philistines are kind of in control, and they've invaded Canaan, this land where the Israelites are hanging out. And the Israelites are tired of this. They're tired of being bullied. They've never been at the perch, and they beg God for a king. They're like, God, we need a king. And they say this to this man named Samuel, who's been put in a position of, of, of authority. He's called a judge. And he's a godly man, and he, he goes to God, and he's like, the people want a king. And God says, okay, I'll give you a king, but it's not going to help any. And God gives him a king. And the first king of Israel is a guy named King Saul. And he's, uh, it talks about him being tall and, and extremely strong and good-looking. Like, he looks the king. Like, he, he, he looks the part. And so Saul is the first king. Unfortunately, long story short, he messed up. He messed up quickly. And then God starts searching for a replacement. And in 1 Samuel 13, God informs Saul, I'm looking for your replacement because you're done. 
And then, he, and then along comes a few chapters later. In 1 Samuel 16, we find out who the new king is going to be. And it's going to be David. So we're going to read the story of David. But here's a little note to self before reading the Old Testament that I try to remind myself of. Because it's, whew, David's story. If you thought Abraham was a mess, he's got nothing on David. Uh, just keep reminding yourself when reading the Old Testament, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We did not always know this but we do now. So I try to remind myself of that. And there's a symbol, a specific act of Jesus that we should use as a filter. And that's the cross. The cross, him dying on the cross, is the single greatest revealer of of what humanity means in God's and humanity's relationship. The cross is God's ace up his sleeve. Like that's what he pulls out and is like, boom, everything's going to be different now. It's the climax of of his story. So everything after the cross is an effect of that specific climactic decision. And everything before the cross must now be looked at through the filter of the cross. That's the key. So if human history were like an original Nintendo entertainment system, the cross is the cheat code for every game. Does anybody remember that? Like when you play Contra? Only the dorks remember that in here. All right, let me try something you might understand. If uh, human history is a Pokemon game. Uh, the cross, at, Jesus would never play Pokemon, so that's not going to work. <laughs> All right, so let's go into page 196 here. Let's get into 1 Samuel and just keep the cross in mind as we're reading this and keep the life of Jesus. He's, he's our filter as we read this. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. So anointing was a practice uh, of where they would pour oil or mark someone's head with oil as a symbol of God has asked you to do something. So that's what anointing means. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They are still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. All right, so that's where we 
we leave the story for now, but stay on that page because we're going to come back to page 197 here in a few minutes. So God reveals David, like this is the guy that's going to replace Saul. And God looks at one thing in that section that we studied. It's verse 7. He said, God looks at the heart. He looks at and looks for a worshipful heart. And David had that. So the complete irony of the situation is that God chose a shepherd. And a shepherd, and uh, the youngest son, so he was also the last to be thought of because he was the youngest, and he was a shepherd, which was the lowliest job in the household. He did not have a position of power or authority in his own household, and yet God picked him. So the job, the looks, the face, God doesn't look at those as much as he looks at the heart. David had a worshipful heart. And if you read his entire story, you see that thread throughout David's story. No matter the terrible mistakes he makes, you see this thread of loyalty and worship of God. He maintains that throughout the ups and downs of his life. David loves God, and that's who God looks for. So how does David go from shepherd to king? Because that's a big jump to make. So Saul needs a musician. So you know, when you're the first king of Israel, and God says, you're terrible, that's going to mess with your head a little bit. All right, things um, are going to go a little downhill mentally and emotionally, and they didn't have medicinal marijuana in the Near Eastern culture. So Saul's like, I need music. I need something to soothe my soul. That's what he tells people. And they're like, and there's a guy in his court that's like, I know a guy. And this guy is David. David happens to, he's a, he's a worshipful, uh, he, he loves God, and he's a really great musician. And so he, that's how he goes from shepherd to sitting in the company of the king as he is the musician that's chosen to help soothe the nerves of this king who's just unraveling mentally. And he, he's the guy that comes in to do that. And so that's how he goes from shepherd to uh, into the, the courts of the king. So God will, so here's what we, now there are stuff, there are times we can read the New Testament and we see this, these themes continue in the New Testament. One of those is God will use your ability. He will look for a worshipful heart and if you respond to his call, he's going to use something you're good at. That's to, to move you along the journey. He's gifted you, whether it's your personality or some specific strength you have, or resource that you have, he will use that to advance his plan to bring more heaven to earth. So let me add this, though. He might, and he probably will, use your gifts in a way you had never imagined, and maybe a way that you don't want to use them, that you might be resistant to, because we can dream about what we want to do with our resources or our strengths or our plans and, and our, what God's gifted us with. His dreams are bigger and better. And when we encounter him and respond to his voice, he is going to use your ability, but he's, he might and probably will use your ability in a way that you don't even feel capable of. He might reveal gifts that you've had dormant, and he won't awaken them until you respond to his voice because he wants more love to enter earth, and he's going to work through you to do that. And that is the theme we see throughout Scripture. So... David's a musician. God uses his talent. So let's, let's look at David the warrior because he's, he's kind of a beast, all right? He, he's, he's kind of a big deal when it comes to fighting. 1 Samuel 17, so the next page over, page 197. Um, if you grew up in church at all, you've heard this story, David versus Goliath. If you haven't, you're going to hear it now. So let me give you a quick context. Goliath is a Philistine soldier. 
So he's part of this huge army uh, that Isra- the Israelites want to kind of go away and they want to conquer. And the, the armies are facing each other. And rather than all of the armies and all the men attack each other, Goliath steps out and is like, how about with me and someone from your side just fight? And he keeps challenging the Israelites. And he's huge. He's over nine feet tall. He's an absolute monster of a man. And no one wants a piece of him. Everybody's afraid of him. But then David steps forward. David's like, I'll do it. And everybody's like, what? And, and Saul's even like, what are you talking about? And so that's where we pick the story up. David's decided, like, I'll be the guy. So we're going to read verse uh, chapter 17, and we're going to start with verse 32 here. It's the very bottom of page 197. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, okay, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened, David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took, he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the, pou- in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your hand, your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it, and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. So David versus Goliath, he takes him down. So there is some beautiful foreshadowing here of the coming King Jesus Christ. So David could not use the armor. He's like, I can't, I can't use this. It wasn't the right fit for him. And it was a symbol of the type of king that was coming a thousand years later, Jesus Christ. A king that didn't wear armor, a king that didn't have a weapon, and a king that didn't ride a war horse. We had a king that rode a donkey. So it's a foreshadowing of the type of king God is going to introduce to people, to humanity. And this is the narrative view of scripture. We, we are seeing throughout the Old Testament, the scales fall off of humanity. 
So with Abraham, we saw a very common practice in that culture, child sacrifice be put to an end. God basically said like, no, no more. That's enough. And then we start seeing pictures of this throughout the Old Testament of this narrative of humanity getting better and better and God leading up to Jesus Christ. So with David not using his armor, but instead selecting small stones, it was a foreshadowing of the climax of the narrative of scripture of Jesus Christ. God's kingdom would not conquer with the sword. It would conquer through a small stone. And Peter speaks to this directly. He speaks directly to this in the New Testament, reminding the people who Jesus is. He quotes the Old Testament. So Peter was Jesus's right-hand man a thousand years later. And here's what Peter wrote about the King Jesus. He says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So so Jesus is that new stone that we're building upon. And we see that, that foreshadowing of that in David's story with the sling and the stone. And then Paul who started a church in Ephesus, who was a Christian. He alludes to this in a letter he wrote in the Bible to the church he started in Ephesus. It's in Ephesians 6. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against Goliath or people. We don't kill people anymore, is what he's saying. We don't do that because... Our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So when we encounter evil now, in the age of Jesus Christ, we fight with love. And we fight using that aggressively. That is our greatest weapon. That is the greatest subduer of evil. And we see glimpses of this in the story of David, of David refusing to wear armor, David refusing to use a sword. David refusing to ride in on a war horse. It's a picture of the coming king. So then we get to 1 Samuel 18. And no, I'm not going to work through every single chapter for 10 minutes. Um, You guys can read this story in 1 and 2 Samuel. But a few more points here. 1 Samuel 18, we see David as a friend. Um, His friendship with Saul's son, uh, Jonathan, he became really close friends with King Saul's son, whose name was Jonathan. He formed a covenant with him, a really beautiful friendship maybe the best friendship we see in the Bible. I mean, it's just a really uh, loving friendship. Later on, really cool. I didn't, and I'd forgotten about this, or I didn't remember it. Um, later on, when David was king, uh, he, Jonathan had, had long been dead, and so had Saul. And he, uh, David was king, so he found Jonathan's son, who was crippled, and he adopted him as his, as his own son. And he gave Jonathan's son all of Saul's land back to him. And he said, from now on, you will eat every meal the rest of your life of people, which is a, a meal in that culture is the greatest sign of family, of friendship that you can have. And he let him eat at his, the table of the king for the rest of his life. That's the kind of friend that David was to Jonathan and Jonathan was to David. And I know God has called me to be a better friend. It's just personally, it's just not something I've ever been really good at. I'm trying to figure out like, how do I be a good friend? And I look at David and Jonathan, and I'm like, that's the type of friendship 
I need to have. And Jesus' word said, greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. And I just wanted to bring that up because I think every one of us could be a better friend to people. Uh, in an age of, uh, of constant isolation and where we just kind of like live in our own little cocoon, it, we need to remember that the, the beauty and the gift of friendship and who God has given us as friends. So 1 Samuel 18 also... Uh, David's circumstances changed dramatically. King Saul gets jealous of him, and he begins a long pursuit of trying to kill David, directly or indirectly. And the following chapters, from 1 Samuel on, uh, it it gets really dark. Uh, It it goes downhill for David. So we see David forced to dodge Saul's attacks, to hide from it, and eventually he has to flee for his life. And then we see David as a broken man. And this is another theme we see throughout Scripture. If you have a worshipful heart, God if you respond to God's voice, he will, he will ask you, he'll try to pull you deeper into his kingdom. Right? He will use your gifts and abilities to further more heaven coming to earth. And then things will get really, really hard. Because when imperfection responds to perfection, it hurts. Right? God is, the, the deeper he wants to pull us into his kingdom, the more shocking it is to our natural imperfection. And David is a broken man. He's, he's fleeing for his life after being anointed. Like, you're going to be the next king, and the next thing he knows, he's dodging spears that Saul's throwing at him, and he's running for his life, and he's hiding in caves, and he, he's just like, what is going on? This is not the plan. This is not how I thought the plan would go, because it's like anointed, hell, king. I mean, it just goes bad, and we see him do this, and we see this, but we see this throughout scripture, We see this with the Apostle Paul after, in the New Testament, he responds to the voice of God. And then he spends like seven to ten years in the wilderness, considering himself a failure. So, the point of this is, if you respond to the voice of God, at some point along the journey, you're going to be filled with incredible doubt, insecurity, negative emotions. Uh, uh, Moses, it was called, when Moses experienced it, it was called the wilderness, all right, when Jesus experienced it, it was the desert. When Paul experienced it, it was a cave. When you experience it, I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's not going to feel good. When imperfection responds to the voice of perfection and follows him, that the impurities, the, the, the gunk that has built up in our life is going to be burned away. It's called the refiner's fire in the Old Testament. It's just a natural effect of responding to the voice of God with Abraham there was this uh, illustration of a fire, and that's what God is like. Fire, when you're in a dark place, you're drawn to the fire, but the closer you get to it, the hotter it gets, and to the point of where it could consume you. That's God. That's how it feels sometimes. And there's going to be moments where you think God has abandoned you, that he's not real, he's not there. If you've grown up in church, all those neat little pretty uh, anecdotes about Jesus and God, they're all going to seem really cheesy and shallow. It's because God is calling you into a deeper connection with him. And it's a really beautiful place to be. And we see David go to this place. Um, For me, I experienced stuff in here and in here that was stuff. I'm like, where is this coming from? Because I've never had this. I, I I was depressed. And this happened like for about a year. Now, I don't know how long it'll last for you. It could be a year. I mean, Paul was 10 years. I hope it doesn't last that long, but it could be that long. For me, I dealt with depression and anger, um, lack of faith, like questioning God quite a bit. Um, I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to do that, right? 
it happens. But when you respond to the voice of God, he's going to take you into a place and deeper into a more mysterious and powerful connection to him. It's just a natural um, part of the journey when you respond to his voice. And in that time, God revealed to me a whole new perspective of who he is. And it, it's, it's been a really beautiful journey. Um, and there are many points on it where I didn't like it, where I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to take, I'm like, I, I was like, I want to quit. Like there's a guy in the Old Testament, Elijah, who basically says that, like, I'm out, peace. You're on your own. And God whispers to him in that dark moment of abandonment, like, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And that's where I want to encourage you, God has not abandoned you. Don't believe that. He's just drawing you into a deeper relationship with him, and he's going to reveal himself to you in new and powerful ways. It might take one day, and it might take one decade. I don't know how long it'll take, because God is, you're playing a unique part in his kingdom. Your story is unique. He adores you. He endures humanity collectively and you individually. So remember that if you're in that type of a season, don't run from that. Live in it. Stay in it. And, and see what God has in store for you. Investigate and search and pray. Try stuff you've never tried before. Fast. Pray. Go on hikes. Whatever. So anything you can do that you haven't tried before to connect with God, try it and see him speak to you. And we get a great picture of this uh, in the Old Testament of what David actually thought during this season. Um, we had this gift of the Psalms. He wrote this, <clears throat> uh, quite a few, if not all of the Psalms. I don't remember. I haven't, I haven't looked at that actually. But um, he was a great musician. He was a poet and a musician. That's how he expressed himself. And one of the most popular um, Psalms he wrote is Psalm 23. He says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. <clears throat> he leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right path for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So David just talking about, like, even, I'm, I'm walking through this incredible period of darkness, but I know you're with me. He kept saying that. He kept believing that. And God showed up and interjected and, and um, drew closer to David. And then in 1 Samuel 22, he's joined by others. All right, he's off on his own, and then people start like just running to him, vagrants and losers and, and, and people that are jaded who, who are kind of sick of the kingdom of Saul. They, they run to David. And this is another foreshadowing of how people, the type of people that would be drawn to Jesus because people are drawn to broken people, to people who have no pretense. That's who people want to be around. They may not voice that, but people who are broken by God are very attractive to people who don't know God. So if, um, if you don't have any non-Christian friends, it might be time for you to respond to the voice of God and enter a season of brokenness. Because people who are broken, who are hurting, who are forgotten, who are pushed aside, they're attracted to the broken king and to the broken servants of the king. 
So just something to remember as we see the, the story of David. Um, and if, you've been, if you haven't been following Christ or you quit for a while or you never have, uh, you need to hear that Jesus Christ is a king who loves you unconditionally. All right? you, you don't have any, there are no pre-qualifications to his love. If you don't have all your stuff together, there are no, or if you've done something and you think you're ashamed of, there's no shame in the kingdom. There are no preconditions that you have to fulfill. You just, have, you just respond to his voice, to the love he has for you. He's patiently pursuing your heart because he loves you, and he's filled with warmth and joy towards you. He's the king that looks at you, and it brings a smile to his face. Maybe you didn't have that as a child, and maybe you don't have that now, but you do have it in Jesus Christ, someone who loves unconditionally and extravagantly. And then we move on to 2 Samuel. And you see David as king. So he does come out of this wilderness. He is anointed king of Israel. And we see him, snippets, have this really beautiful relationship with God of both kingdom and covenant. We have two different types of identities with God. I'm going to show you. I'm going to put a little graphic on screen here. So we have God as our father and we have God as our king. Saul had God as his king. He had the authority. God gave him the authority to have power over Israel. That was, God, that was Saul's calling. The problem is Saul did not believe in God as his father. He did not find his identity in God and therefore did not obey God. And it cost him his kingdom because our kingdom impact, like our ability to bring more love and more heaven to earth, correlates directly with our father relationship. We have to have both. David had both in moments. Um, he had it when he was anointed king. He responded to the voice of God he had power over Israel, but he also had a really intimate relationship with God. And he, had, he found his identity in God. And here's what we do. Here's where we make the mistake sometimes. Sometimes we find our identity and our worth in the kingdom side and what we can do for God. And that's not correct. We find our identity and our worth in God as our father. Uh, the, the word for that in Hebrew is called Abba, which means daddy. Like it, it's like we're children sitting on our daddy's lap. He's an unconditionally loving father. Nothing you could do could make him love you less. And that is where we find all of our identity. And out of that flows our kingdom impact. And David had that. So when we have those two working together, good things happen. And here's a, a pretty cool fact that I noticed. David becomes king of Israel as a 30-year-old man. He ended up ruling all of Israel for 33 years, and I don't think that's a coincidence. Jesus' ministry started when he was 30 years old, and he died when he was 33, roughly. So just kind of another cool little, oh, there's little Jesus, a little foreshadowing in the New Testament. And then finally, David was a mess. All right, he becomes a king, and um, even before he, the king, I, I've only shared kind of the good stuff about David. Uh, we, we have to acknowledge the bad all right, we, ha we can't just gloss over the Old Testament and some of the stories we read there. Some of them are bad. Some of them are just downright weird. And you read stuff in the Old Testament, you're like, what is that even talking about? And I have lots of those moments. And I'm just going to highlight a few of them. Verse 16, verse 14, God says that he left Saul. The Spirit of God left him. And I, I don't get that. I'm like, wait a second. I thought God never leaves and, and pursues. And I wish I had an explanation for that. I didn't have the hours to study that and to look at it. But I do know Jesus is like God. God has always been like Jesus. We haven't always known that, but we do now. So every time I read the Old Testament, I'm, I'm working through this. And I don't believe truth is static. The truth 
and, and, and the belief we have in God is unfolding. The journey never ends. So I read stuff like that, and I'm like, I don't get it, but I'm going to look, I'm going to study, I'm going to pray, I'm going to see what God reveals. And in 1 Samuel 18, David kills Philistines, and then he cuts off 100 of their foreskins and brings them back. And I look at that type of sick, twisted violence, and I'm like, how is that good? How is that, like, why is that in the story? Why did God allow that to happen? And in 1 Samuel 22, Saul kills a bunch of priests, of God's priests. There's just bloodshed. And then in 1 Samuel 28, a witch brings Samuel's spirit, and Saul finds out he's going to die. There's witchcraft involved. And then God uses that to basically tell Saul, like, you're going to die young. And then 1 Samuel 31, Jonathan is killed, David's best friend. Why did he let that happen? David's closest friend and a beautiful example of friendship. And then 2 Samuel 1, David finds out about Saul's death. This is weird and sick. And he murders the man who gave him the first person account of Saul's death. He kills him. And then 2 Samuel 3, the house of Saul and the house of David. Saul's dead, but his servants continue to fight with the house of David. They continue this bloodthirsty war. And then David just starts having kids with multiple different women in 2 Samuel 3. 2 Samuel 4, David kills two more guys, murders them. 2 Samuel 5, David celebrated becoming king by continually, continuing to violently conquer people, and he also took more concubines and more wives. In 2 Samuel uh, 11 and 12, David has an affair with a woman named Bathsheba who's married to another man. Then he kills her husband. He conceives a child with her, and that child's name was Solomon, and he would be king, and he would write books of the Bible. Now, I wish I could. Now, I could continue, but here's the point. I bring up those examples because I wish I could plow through the verses and the chapters that we read in the Old Testament and, and like, tie a bow on them. Like, oh, well, here's the answer to that. Oh, and here's, here's what this means. And make it ni- nice and, and clean and inspirational of, of stories of God, and this is how he works. And there are parts of David's story where you can do that, where you see glimpses of Jesus and beauty. But there are parts that spark a lot of questions. So yeah, I wish I had all the answers, but frankly, I'm skeptical of people who think they have all the answers. So I don't want to be that guy that pretends like I have all the answers. And that's part of following Christ, is knowing we don't have all the answers, knowing that truth is unfolding, being comfortable with asking God tough questions, This is that type of church. We don't tie bows on stuff. We ask tough questions. We dwell in the weirdness and in the tension. And we try to figure out through prayer and discussion and communion, where is God speaking to us? But here's what I see throughout the Old Testament. I don't have all the answers, but I do see a narrative. I do see a story taking place. So I don't have all the answers. And so when people talk about Christianity, like would it solve all the answers and the problems in the world? My faith tells me, yes, I don't have an Excel spreadsheet that lays that out and tells exactly how that's going to be done. I see what I do have is a story, a narrative that we see. And we see a perfect beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. Things are going well. And then humanity falls off this cliff, willingly rejects God, says, we want to do this on our own. And then the rest of the Old Testament is like this. And it's this like roller coaster ride of ups and downs, ups and downs. And the ups always happen because God's like, get up. He's like our dad that's walking behind us as a toddler, like doing this, like just watching us to make sure we don't fall too hard. And he's the kind of dad that's going to let us fall. He's not a controlling God. That's what we see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
you look, study every single other religion in the world, every single one has a deity that is high control. The God of the Bible is not. And that's what makes Christianity unique, is that we have a dad who walks and watches us fall, picks us back up. We're going to bleed a little. We're going to cry. He's going to pick us back up. He's not a high control God. He's just an unconditionally loving father that's trying to lead us to maturity in Jesus Christ. And that's how we see the Old Testament, up and down, up and down. And then God reveals Jesus, who is our new foundation. We're not building off the graves of David and Abraham. We're building on the cross of Christ. And that grave is empty. There are no more graves. There's no more death to be built upon. And so that's the narrative we see throughout Scripture. And that's where we build now is off of Jesus. And he is our great do-over. He's the reset button. He's the new Adam, the new foundation, the new rock. And because he is timeless, in the he can redeem both the past, the present, and the future. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. So there is no sin, no pain in human history, past, present, or future that Jesus can't touch and heal. That's the kind of God we have. That's how big he is. He does not operate by time. He is not bound by anything. He redeems everything. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ now. That's where the bloodline went, is up to Christ. So there's no greater love than the love Jesus has for you. He was adopted. He wasn't an actual blood relative of Abraham and Ruth and David. His father, his adoptive father, Joseph, was a blood relative. And Joseph adopted him as his son. And that is where the bloodline continues. It's not perfect, but it is once it gets to Jesus. He was adopted, and he wants to adopt you. He wants you to respond to his voice because his love is the deepest, richest, and most satisfying love we have in history. It's not just good news for some people. It is good news for everybody. Let's pray.